Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, folks. Uh, Welcome to New Books and Celebration Studies, a special series on the New Books Network. I am Emily Allen, your host for this episode. Our guest is Dr. Jill Ingram, author of Festive Enterprise, The Business of Drama in Medieval and Renaissance England, published by Notre Dame Press in 2021. In Festive Enterprise, Dr. Jill Ingram merges the history of economic thought with studies of theatricality and spectatorship to examine how English Renaissance plays employed forms and practices from medieval and traditional entertainments to signal the expectation of giving from their audiences. By analyzing a wide range of genres and a diverse range of venues, Ingram demonstrates how early moderns borrowed medieval money gatherers' techniques to signal communal obligations and rewards for charitable support of theatrical endeavors. Ingram shows that economics and drama cannot be considered as separate enterprises in the medieval and Renaissance periods. Rather, marketplace pressures were at the heart of dramatic form and medieval and Renaissance drama alike. So a little bit more about our guest. Uh, Dr. Jill Ingram is Associate Professor of English at Ohio University. So welcome, Dr. Ingram, to the New Books Network. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, so we'll come back to the book in a minute. But before we get into that, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, well, I am a uh, literature professor. I teach mainly Shakespeare and Renaissance drama. Uh, but my background is, uh, let's say I took a winding path to get to literature. I actually started in with a journalism degree. And then I went to work in advertising. And that actually, my work in advertising does connect to my current work in economics and literature. Uh, so I have something of an insight there. But after working in advertising, which I thought I was going to be doing um, sort of based upon my love for language and, you know, writing, maybe I'll be writing interesting ads or jingles, you know, and that's not what happened. I was basically a salesperson. And so I got out of advertising and I went back to school and my love for language was uh, so, so deep and, and impractical, shall we say, that I got a degree in creative writing. I got a master's degree in creative writing and poetry from the University of California, Davis. And um, if I could have been a professional poet, like in the days of Beowulf, where I could have made my living (laughs) roaming the land and and reciting poems, I would have. But very few poets, you know, make a living at it. So I thought, okay, graduate school is the place for me. And uh, I want to study the best poetry that was ever written. So, of course, that's Shakespeare and John Donne, Renaissance poetry. But when I went to graduate school at University of Virginia, um, I found that the courses on drama really uh, just sparked my interest a lot more. And there were some great professors there. Um, Catherine Moss is one of my professors uh, at, with whom I studied drama and uh, just fell in love with Shake- not only Shakespeare, but Shakespeare's contemporaries. And so um, then, you know, I ended up finishing my my dissertation on economics and drama. So my first book was called Idioms of Self-Interest, and it was about expressions of the profit motive in plays, but also in some prose works at the time. And um, and so my current work is sort of an, an outgrowth of that as well. Yeah. And that brings me to uh, my next question, actually, about this book's you know journey as well. 
Um, you know, what was the process from that point you were just talking about to now of working on Festive Enterprise, you know, the book we're talking about today, like, you know, did anything kind of surprise you as you were working on this project? Well, it's, it's interesting because I first got interested in festivity and I'll give a definition of that in a minute, but I first got interested in festivity by this one character that um, would crop up sometimes in plays, but sometimes in records I was looking at in court entertainments called The Lord of Misrule. And um, in fact, when I was originally writing my dissertation as a graduate student, I thought I wanted to write a uh, dissertation on The Lord of Misrule. And uh, I really couldn't find enough evidence to base an entire dissertation on that. But I I retained that interest in the figure. And um, became interested in more festive entertainments. So what are festive entertainments? Um, So festivity is uh, basically what it sounds like, you know, celebrations uh, originally in medieval times associated with um, holidays and the original definition of holiday is holy day. So associated with, you know, church and liturgical celebrations um, having to do with the the ritual year, Um, but also rural celebrations like sheep shearing festivals and midsummer fairs. Um, But the church celebrations might be anything from something that sounds more secular, like, oh, a church ale in the churchyard to raise money so we can, you know, build more pews, Um, to more actual liturgical celebrations like uh, the Corpus Christi Day procession through a town. So, you know, Corpus Christi celebrates... Um, it celebrates the Eucharist or the, you know, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And so during that procession, um, an actual wafer, you know, the body of Christ is um, displayed and processed through town. Um, but along with that began to be a number of plays that would be performed either on stationary uh, little scaffolding um, stages or on wagons that would then be pulled through town in a procession. And so I got interested in the certain characters in these festive celebrations that served as money gatherers. Um, because in order for these processions and in order for any of these, even, um, entertainments at church ales, like a little nonce, uh, play, you know, that would be, that would be put on the way that, those uh, productions had to be funded was basically kind of like someone passing around a hat, you know, that that there would be a character to go to the spectators and say, Oh, you know, please contribute. Um, We have to pay for the costumes or, you know, we have to pay for that when we built that wagon. Um, And so I got really interested in that interchange between those gathering figures. They called themselves gatherers um, who would gather the money and the relationships they were forming with the audience members in order to elicit goodwill from the audience in order to li- elicit that you know charitable impulse um, or just the willingness to give to help to pay for the performance. Um, and then ultimately, and we'll get to that later, but my book is about how the vestiges of those characters show up in later professional drama of Shakespeare's day when you no longer needed to pass around a hat, but someone was willing to actually pay money in order to even enter the the venue in order to enter, you know, to pay their pence to get into the theater. 
Thank you so much for explaining. I think that really helps set the stage, if you will, for our listeners in terms of what we're talking about here um, with the book. And, you know, like, continuing to kind of set up this context for a minute, right? Like thinking about the book's title, for instance, Festive Enterprise, right? You know, can you kind of talk about that term um, sort of in relation to everything you're just talking about? Um, and you were already sort of talking about some of the genres that you discuss a little bit, but can you kind of talk about that phrase that you have for the title Festive Enterprise? Sure, sure. Um, so Festive Enterprise has to do with um, sort of the entrepreneurialism or the enterprise of the people who put on these festive productions and the way that that enterprise, which um, is a noun, but early on in my book, I also show how in the late medieval times, enterprise was also used as a verb. So I would enterprise upon an adventure. I would um, you know, sometimes use with military pursuits, like he would um, enterprise the battle. Um, so it's such an active verb that can also be used as a noun. So I, I got interested in that. Um, but these enterprising figures um, just displayed this entrepreneurial spirit and drive um, to allow their productions, whether it was a, a religious, uh, a religious, religiously oriented liturgical celebration or a more secular town players strolling to another town to gather money, how, how those figures use that entrepreneurial drive to sometimes create new dramatic forms even. Um, and then eventually how that affected the drama Shakespeare's time. Yeah. And what I love is at the beginning, how you kind of talked about your sort of interdisciplinary background and you definitely kind of get that sense of what you're bringing to, to the table here with this um, book. And I love how that all comes together for you. Um, like you were saying with like your advertising background and whatnot. Um, so I find that really fascinating. Um, and, you know, kind of thinking about, you know, the different disciplines here, you know, who do you think would, you know, enjoy this book, right? Like what kind of readers, what kind of disciplines do you think would engage best with this text? I guess uh, first and foremost, it would be literary critics, people who are sort of steeped in this literature and scholarship to begin with. Um, and then people interested in theater, whether it's, you know, actors or um, those in students involved in, you know, graduate programs in theater, um, but also scholars of economics, um, economics and literature. So there's a growing burgeoning field of that. There's a whole, um, field of criticism called new economic criticism. It's not that new anymore, but um, so people who work in new economic criticism, um, but also just the history of economic thought, um, because to me, it's, I mean, what's different about my book versus other books on festivity, and there is a, a tradition of people working on drama, working in festivity. Um, so what's different between mine, my work and theirs is that I really focus on funding, which sounds totally dry and boring. <laughs> but, um, you know, obviously the way that I'm looking at it is that I'm looking at the, the interesting types of characters and the dramaturgy that gets shaped through this exigency of having to fundraise, um, having to get spectators interested in what you're doing and, and to um, create this, this goodwill. Um, but also, and another thing that my book examines is ways in which plays, 
in Shakespeare's time um, and other types of entertainments, whether it's a Lord Mayor's show, which um, is basically a procession through London celebrating the new mayor and it would happen during the mayoral installation once a year. So it was, you know, pretty taking place pretty often, just annually, um, how they not only, you know, forge these relationships with the spectators in order to, um, you know, make their entertainment profitable, but how they also um, use the entertainments to make certain political points like with, within a larger economic context. So that's sort of the, what the later chapters of my book get into. But um, one thing that and I'm talking about sort of what makes my book new and different, and I guess one thing that people could expect to find that is a little different is that I challenge uh, what a lot of critics working on economics and literature called the commodification, um, the commodification of drama in Shakespeare's day, a sort of an accepted narrative that, oh, well, there used to be these religious and very communal oriented celebrations in which everyone knew each other and they wanted to give because, of course, it was their neighbor up there, you know, performing that that uh, entertainment. Um, and that when you get to Shakespeare's time, or when you get to the time of the uh, public stage in London, where people had to pay um entry fees, you know, to get in and see the performance, that it's just commodified, that it's, it's no longer communal. You take away any sort of personal connection. It's entirely profit driven. Um, and that really strips, uh, the communal aspect of the entertainment and that, um, you know, people no longer feel this connection with what's going on in the entertainment, um, and that they're distanced from it. Um, that they might enjoy it, you know, aesthetically, or it's an entertainment, um, but they're not, you know, as involved. Um, that's not it's because it's not a cooperative, cooperative effort, since they're not involved in actually making the production, or if they didn't help, you know, hammer that little pageant wagon together, they're not going to have the same connection to the drama. So um, I counter that narrative. And there's, I guess, two basic ways in which I counter that commodification model. One is that I say that um, the one side of the coin is that entry fees were nothing new, that um, if we look at, say, town players and mid-Tudor provincial town plays, they charge spectators for plays in churches. And um, even guilds who were asked to help make the pageant wagons in these Corpus Christi Day processions or um, guild processions or, you know, liturgical celebrations, um, that they were taxed if the uh, entertainment didn't make money. And so that they basically had to, could, they had to contribute to the profitability. So profitability was always a concern and could, uh, you know, make people feel, hey, is this really a communal event I'm being made to pay here? Um and so I say that there's a commercial continuum between medieval and Renaissance plays. And also that um, communal aspects, if you want to talk communal aspects of a, of a uh, theatrical event or of a play, that those remained, that there were a lot of people, you know, like it takes a village to put on a play, even in Shakespeare's time. So it's not just the playing company who, yeah, they, um, they shared in the profits. It wasn't just the playwright who shared in the profits um, most often. Um, it was 
the tiring men and women, the tiring women and men were people who helped um, repair the costumes. There were there was the box holder, the person who actually like held a little jar, a clay jar or a box that would take the pence of people entering the theater. There were book holders, the people behind the scenes who would hold the you know the manuscript of the play and help remind actors what their lines were. There were light trimmers for the say the indoor theaters. Um, so the, uh, many of those communal aspects remained, and um, so you so. Yeah, those, I guess, are the two main ways I counter that commodification narrative um, in in my work. Yeah, I love that you, again, kind of showed, even with just your statements there, how much goes into these, you know, different types of performances, right? And I was thinking about how you were talking about, like, what makes your text, you know, different from other, you know, uh projects like along the same vein. And I was wondering if after working on the project, were there other areas that you wish you'd had the chance to explore further for this project? Or were there other things that you think would be interesting to explore as well, you know, on sort of the economic side of productions like this, you know? Yeah, well, I I would be really interested in something that I think other people are doing good work in, but I haven't really explored yet. Or, um, sort of female, both, uh, you know, women um, participants in the economic, you know, in the marketplace of drama. So whether, um, you know, sometimes uh, widows would inherit, you know, part of a, of a, a share in a, in a plain company, share in a theater. Um, I know that there was a, uh, I think one example in my book. So I, again, I don't have very many examples of this. And I think an entire study of this would be fascinating. Um, there was a woman who was given in her, in a, in a will, um, the role as that box holder or, or, you know, the person who took the pence at the door, um, of the theater and that, you know, so there was a female gatherer box holder and, and how many of those were there? Um, and then the towering women who worked repairing costumes, like did, were there, was there any, um, I don't know, say entrepreneurial, which and, and individual efforts by women to maybe put on plays kind of <laughs> behind the scenes or, you know, because women were not allowed to play um, female parts on, they weren't allowed to perform on stage at Shakespeare, on Shakespeare's, in Shakespeare's time at all. And men played, boys played female parts. And so I just have to think there's, there were women in the audience watching these plays. And we have evidence, um, of course, at court of women, aristocratic women performing in masks. But um, women just as much as men and boys must have had that dramatic spirit, you know, that drive to act on the stage. And how was that expressed? And I'd love to, I know there are people working on this, but that's something that sort of interests me and, uh, and does not uh, feature prominently in my research. Yeah. I'm always just curious. Cause I know, I don't know about you. I always get, there's so many things I would love to write about, but again, you have to just get the thing done. <laughs> So that would be really interesting, um, but that's cool to hear more about. 
Um, but anyway, going back to this project, you know, let's look a little bit more, uh, talk about, you know, more of the content here. Um, and as you kind of lay out in the introduction, it seems like these chapters are sort of like the way you frame it in the organization laid out in pairs sort of. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so thinking about, Chapters one and two, you know, you say that they both discuss, quote, methods of audience address, such as the gather thief character, you know, for listeners, think about something like Robin Hood, for instance, um, and prologues and epilogues. So can you talk about, you know, in both these chapters, the, the significance of those types of approaches? Okay, yeah, definitely. Um, one thing I'm doing in my first few chapters is, I guess I'm creating a story uh chronological narrative of how um, these early gather figures developed and then how we see them sort of make their way onto the early modern stage. So um, I traced and I looked at how um, these early figures, like why these early figures that would go and gather money from people, why they even developed. Um, and what happened was uh, for say church ales or, um, these Corpus Christi Day celebrations um, that early on the church themselves or, you know, certain figures in the church would just, I think like maybe during a church service or just after would start to um, try to just have what was called traditional parish collections, almost like, like a, a tax or something. And parishioners had started to resist that. <laughs> and so the church authorities went to, the various guilds and said, you know, we need to motivate people um, more actively to, to contribute to the cost of these, these productions that we're putting on. And so um, the guild started overseeing fundraising and they um, developed these characters. I guess the people in the guilds just had a sense that it would be better if we created certain characters and they would dress in certain costumes. So very much like I mean, Robin Hood's uh, like the most well-known example, but there are other ones um, called Maidens, maybe connected with Maid Marian. Um, there is a group called the Hogglers, and then the guilds would even name part of their guild after those, those characters. Um, and often that type of character then, and sometimes just individual characters, would... Um, started appearing in other types of celebrations, like summer festivities. There were midsummer festivals and there were Whitsun festivals. And so sometimes these characters would create uh, like a mock court where there would be like the King of Maying or uh, the again, the Lord of Misrule. Um, so these characters are kind of um, mischievous <laughs> and almost like a jester character because they would attract more attention that way. Um, and Morris dancers were also a type of character. So I don't know if everyone knows about Morris dancers. I mean, I guess they have appeared in the 20th century and they've, you know, you'll see them of course at Renaissance fairs and stuff, but um, so they're brightly costumed characters with bells, like stockings and bells around their legs. And they would dance and sort of kick the bells up and then have these scarves that they would wave around in a dance. I mean, you can see examples on YouTube of modern uh, groups trying to recreate that. And so, um, but what I found in my research was that when, when you see, and you can see sometimes in um, old like church records, you can see the payments made for the costumes and what they call different parts of the costumes. And when you saw the payments for these Morris dancer uh, costumes, it would often just be bells, bells, um, scarves. 
And but on a few occasions, I saw, and one was associated with a passion play in New Romney. Um, they called them Hell's Bells, and I thought that was so interesting. Um, I mean, it makes me think of the ACDC song, but, but um, no, it it was a uh, so, and and there were other references associating the Morris dancer with the devil, and so it must have been something that they were you know acting out. Maybe they were acting out you know a religious play like the Harrowing of Hell, or there were lots of scenes in early medieval plays that had a hell mouth, and so demons would come up. And maybe the Morris dancers. I mean, it does seem that they were associated with these hellish characters, but. Um, you know, that was kind of fun for people to watch. And so it would be those characters who then would hold out a ladle or, or have some sort of, um, you know, um, just sort of little uh, stage property or some, some prop to gather, gather the funds. Um, and then what I started to see was these gathering methods yeah, found their way into more and more plays, but they usually the gather was associated with this kind of vice or devilish character and um, it's seen in a famous example, and I'm not the first to point this out, but in Mankind, in the play Mankind, which is heavily anthologized, so a lot of students will be reading that play, so I use it as an example. The devil character, Tetivalis is his name, is the vice character, or the evil character who's trying to tempt mankind to hell. Um, he has these minor vices they call them like this these little um like he has a little group of hangers on and one of them is called new guys and he actually literally says in the play we intend to gather money so it's a very explicit that those characters are gathering money and they say we're not going to let tetivalis on stage until you contribute money to the play it's fascinating you know so so it's clear that people wanted to see this vice character enough that they could use his impending appearance as an inducement to contribute to the play. And actually during the play, then it would like pause and they'd go out and gather money from the audience. Um, and so I was looking for more of that type of example and you just don't see it as explicitly that much. But what I saw was that in these early 16th century plays um, that you would have vice, absolute vice characters because they would be named vice in the you know, list of characters at the beginning. Um, and they would be the ones to then warn the audience members that they were going to be um, victims of a thievery or be tricked in some way. And so I was like, oh, well, that's just like those Morris dancers or the others that were these vice characters. But now the characters are in the play warning them that, um, Hey, audience members, you know, someone, one of my cohorts may come and try to steal from you. Ha <laughs> ha, isn't that funny? <laughs> but I, you know, I couldn't, because I was always trying to figure out why do we like vice characters? But it's the vice characters who most, and this is true in, in Shakespeare's plays too, like Richard III and, um, you know, Iago, they're the ones who kind of confide in the audience and make a connection. So when I look back at these early 16th century plays, I see those those characters making that connection, but also explicitly telling the audience, I'm going to steal from you. And so to me, it was connected with that early money gathering impulse. So there's um, in Thomas Preston's play, and uh, it's a play called Cambyses in 1560, there's a character ambidexter, which is great because he's like, ambidextrous. He has so many hands he can steal from you. <laughs> but anyways, he um, alerts the audience to his cousin Cutpurse 
And he says, oh, you know, he basically says, careful, be audience, careful audience. My cousin cut purse is going to be down there among you cutting, you know, because they would literally like snip the purse off of people, you know, that had a purse hanging around their body. And so, but he goads his cousin cut purse. He goads him on in the play and it's in the play text and it says, um, to it, to it, cousin, do your office fine. So he's like both goading on this thief and telling the audience they're going to be victims of thievery, but he's kind of inviting the audience to be complicit in it. And I'm like, well, why, why is this happening? But to me, it goes back to kind of the delight in gathering that um, I think the audience shared and be like, okay, you know, that's my way of paying for the entertainment. I'll just let them take a couple pence from my pocket. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's, um, that's just one of the, I guess I, I, in my book, I call it the gathering function. And then I call those characters vice gatherers um, because I find enough examples of it that, uh, that I found, you know, it's an absolute pattern. It's absolutely there in the drama. Yeah, that's so much fun. And thank you for, again, just giving that context for our listeners. And I think that they know, they'll know exactly what you're talking about. Like you're saying with like other, uh, you know, specific plays and stuff that they've engaged with. Um, and, you know, where were, what kind of sources were you looking at to kind of learn about this, these characters? I was kind of curious about sort of like the method and re- yeah. behind that. Um, well, to look at the really early examples and those early church examples I was talking about, liturgical celebrations and rural celebrations, I had to look at the, um, there's a, there's a great um, series of printed sources called the Records of Early English Drama or the Read Volumes. And those of us who don't do a lot of work in archives and like especially during COVID when you couldn't travel anywhere, you sort of had to rely on these printed volumes. So um, these scholars have done amazing work. These theater historians have gone to um, every parish in England and they're sort of yeah, divided up. Um, into lo- sometimes localities, um, sometimes parishes, uh, for any type of dramatic entertainment, anything that could be considered drama that we have a record of. And then they found those records and found out what they were referring to, have amazing you know, endnotes to these things. And uh, so that's where I found the early records. And then, um, and then I just plowed through a lot of early drama, you know, late medieval to early Renaissance drama to look for those connections, those characters that might be addressing the audience in a certain way. And then, um, and then I moved and I was much more familiar with Renaissance drama. So Shakespeare and his contemporaries. Um, And so when I finally moved to Renaissance drama, I mean, all the plays are the plays that are extant are many of them are in, you know, we have printed volumes of them now that have been nicely edited. (laughs) Um, But I found that that gathering function, so I moved from the vice gatherer to, I looked at prologues and epilogues. And a lot of people have worked actually on prologues and epilogues. Um, It's it's a popular source for literary critics to look at um, audience address and spectatorship issues. Um, so I was looking more specifically at, you know, I was digging into it, the actual language of how, how these prologue characters address the audience in terms of, you know, making, how can the audience help make the play more successful or how can we know that the play is successful? And again, this is sort of a a commonly known theme that uh, 
prologues and epilogues ask for applause. And if there's a lot of applause at the end of the play, and it's sort of a common trope in Shakespeare's plays that a character will get up on stage and say, please, you know, applaud for our play, and then we'll know that we get to perform this again. And that was true, is actually um, how it worked, that if the play was not popular or not too many people applauded for it at the end, it would kind of be the end of the run of the play. And so it actually was almost like an advertising or marketing technique for the character in the often in the epilogue, but sometimes in the prologue to say, look, we need you to applaud. Um, And it was direct address to the audience. So to me, it was a continuum of this character that I've been looking at that directly addresses the audience. But like, say, for example, Puck in A Midsummer Night's Dream, um, very popular character, fairy character in the play says at the end, give me your hands if we be friends and Robin shall restore amends. Speaking of, you know, that he will sort of make things better. But, you know, um, if there's anything in the play that didn't please you, you know, Robin will restore amends, but you, give me your hands. You have to applaud. Um, and then on the other side of the coin, uh, like Shakespeare's Two Noble Kinsmen has a warning that, uh, and I believe this is in the prologue, where uh, the prologue says in the prologue character, which sometimes isn't named, but often is a costumed character that would be in the play that people would then know is in the play. Um, that character warned, uh, we hope that this doesn't happen, but that a dis- he says a disgruntled hiss will kill our market, which is so interesting to use that word market, you know, meaning the market for their play or the success of the play. And that please don't hiss or boo <laughs> um, if, you, if you don't, you know, like the play, because then the play will be killed. And so it's it's just, to me, it was interesting how these, so they didn't need to gather money anymore. They didn't need to say, oh, we're going to take money from your pockets. But like, we need you to applaud. We need the play to be successful and people to fill these seats so that the play can be performed again. So to me, it was a version of the gathering function that we see in the prologues and epilogues. And then one last example um, that people might be familiar with is Ben Johnson, who is a, is a, a well-known playwright, Shakespeare's contemporary. And he um, actually had Catholic leanings and he really enjoyed, he had a connection sort of everybody knew with a traditional rituals. Um, and so he was a little bit more vocal in expressing the connections between traditional, these traditional communal rituals um, from like early Catholic festivities and the, we haven't really talked about the Reformation, but anyways, post, you know, Catholicism was outlawed. Um, and so in this Protestant um, playhouse that his plays were being performed in, and he would make references to certain traditional festivities and liken his play to those. So um, one of the ways he did that, and he talked about festive feasts, and he referred often to his play as a type of feast that people were invited to come to and enjoy. And so in The Alchemist, for instance, um, and I think this is in the prologue, um, the character Face says he promises to, quote, feast them often and invite new guests, unquote. So meaning the audience, like, if you please come back and see my play again, you know, it's basically what Ben Johnson is saying, because I will feast you, my characters will feast you and and please invite new guests so there can be more people coming to my play. 
Um, and then on Epicene, the prologue characters uh, describes the play as a series of dishes set out. He calls them Kate, Kate's, C-A-I-T-S, which is like cakes or you know, num-nums. <laughs> Kate's, he said, uh, are set out for the audience. And it's interesting because he talks about the type of people coming to please, coming to see the play. And he says, my Kate's are set out for nights, something like knights, squires, and lords, um, but also for the waiting wench like the waiting woman, you know, or the maid. And so I thought, I thought that's a really fascinating example of he's not only saying, look, this is like a feast set out for the audience, but this is suitable for everyone. Like, you know, and you'll hear ads like that now for things like everyone will enjoy this movie, you know, <laughs> from grandparents to the kids and, you know, from like wealthy aristocrats and then landed peers to just some serving woman. Um and then one last example, because Ben Johnson is so much fun to quote, so I just have to offer one more quote. Um, and again, from Epicene, his play Epicene, it ends, uh, nor is it only while you keep your seat here that this feast will last, but you shall eat a week at ordinaries on this broken meat. So the ordinary was the tavern. And by saying that you shall eat a week at ordinaries, he's basically saying, oh, you're going to go to the tavern and talk to your buddies, your drinking buddies about this play. And um, you, you'll enjoy it. You'll keep enjoying it because it's like, you know, part of the convivial experience of having a feast together and seeing my play is like, I'm like giving you a feast. And then you'll go to the tavern and talk about it with others. And so, but he's also implying that his play is popular enough that Lots of people will be talking about it at the tavern. So it's, it's just another interesting way, I think, that characters work their way into Renaissance drama that imply that the play will be commercially successful or ask the audience to help it, to help make it commercially successful. But that's done like through the mouths of the characters in the play. So that was something that I thought I could use examples from more well-known Renaissance plays and show how the character has remained how the character has sort of um, kept itself relevant, you know, through the ages, through almost four centuries of drama. Yeah, that's really cool. And again, just really fascinating to hear more about, you know, and I thought it was cool too. kind of in the next two chapters, you continued, of course, with the discussion of the commercial, but in this case, joining the sacred with it, right? And you get into Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale and John Taylor's Penniless Pilgrimage. Um, so in those case studies, what do you feel like are the key takeaways, you know, within the larger book? Right. Right. So in those chapters, really focus more on how economic concerns over profit drove early, early religious entertainments. Um, and then we can see those concerns that the way in which, I guess, spiritual and economic advantage were united we, we see that, um, that began in the marketplace of festive events, but then continue through certain dramatic genres in Shakespeare's day. So in early festive events, um, it was a commonplace that heavenly rewards were offered for, say, almsgiving or charity, you know, and, and you'll hear that in church sermons um, or, um, again, like a Corpus Christi procession, um, just that, uh, you know, heaven is, is waiting for you. But, um, if you think about sort of the Catholic doctrine of good works, you know, that if you contribute to the poor or if you, 
um, are just active in your community through almsgiving, that that will, you will be rewarded in the afterlife. Um, so there's that aspect of it. But then I talk about how certain festive events, um, the conviviality around those festive events um, were seized upon, that conviviality was seized upon by participants. So for instance, beggars and the poor would show up at these events knowing that people were motivated. Oh, you know, it's good if I, if I'm active in my charitable giving and that will help me um, in the afterlife. And so um, one of the examples I look at in a chapter on the winter's tale is about um, in that play, there's a character who is a, basically a beggar. He's, he's basically a thief, <laughs> but he shows up at the sheep cheering festival because he knows he can sort of seize upon the, the, the charitable impulse. So in that chapter, I look at sort of the history of um, these festive events in, uh, you know, at these sort of either, church-sponsored events are also just rural celebrations and how the marketplace that, it, that develops there um, is both an example of early entrepreneurialism, not just in drama, but people would come and sell things. Like you, you think about, I don't know, it, it's like a common, it was a makeshift economy. So it was a combination of like farmer's market and um, art fair, you know, where, where people would sell all kinds of things, but that um, it brought all levels of the society together. Um, and so I talk about how actually more social mixing um, occurred in these events and, uh, and that it motivated certain kinds of entertainments that, yeah, would sort of draw upon that conviviality. But then in looking at that background, I also saw how um, sometimes in such events, there would be conflicts, but people would... Um, again, use that part of that communal spirit to negotiate for their own advantage. So for instance, um, and this is where, again, I show, well, there's a commercial continuum. There was always a concern for profit and there was always a concern for, you know, getting ahead in the world and you had to be entrepreneurial. So one of these examples is great. It's um, in a 15th century York, during the Corpus Christi procession, um, people began to be concerned and complain because the civic elite in York actually would um, make sure that uh, the civic oligarchy made pageant wagons stop at powerful York institutions um, to, you know, cement mutually advantageous civic ties. And they would like build, you know, seats and scaffolding in front of certain people's houses and, and make people pay like, oh, well, this pageant wagon is going to stop here. So if you pay, you know, five pence or whatever, you'll have a really good view of this play. Well, um, participants began to challenge that financial arrangement because they saw, wait, these viewing stations are only benefiting the civic elite or the eminent households. Um, and so I guess it was the mayor and the commons advanced an order for the money that was gathered for those seats to be applied to the use of the commons. Um, and so, and they, they won that, that uh, dispute at that time, but those, the whole idea of viewing stations, it just reminded me of, I recently saw a, um, a baseball game at Wrigley Field. And I don't know if you've ever been there or if you've seen this at other ballparks, but um, over beyond where the bleachers are across the street, there are these apartment buildings and they've built seats on top of the apartment buildings. 
<laughs> and it's the same dispute because what happened was like in the 80s or something when people started for the owners of those buildings built those seats and charged a lot of money for people to sit in those stands and watch the game. Um, the owner of the Cubs challenged that and said, wait a minute, you know, it's not part of the park. And, and so the family, it was some old Italian family that owned a lot of those buildings. They, for years, they wouldn't give them up because they were earning a lot of money. I guess finally the Ricketts family who owns the Cubs now, owns the Cubs organization, or Wrigley Field, um, made too good of an offer. And now it's called like rooftops or like it has some institutional name now. And then, but the, the family who owns the Cubs owns that all those seats now. <laughs> so to me, it, it was interesting that, um, you know, there were those disputes um, and that, you know, at first the civic elite thought they could control, you know, who saw or like they thought they control the profits over those um, viewing stations, but it, it was, it came in for dispute. And then, um, and I'm, trying to think the other oh and in chapter four that's right i talk about how an individual entertainer because so much of my book is about oh these group events um so i was really interested in how individual entertainers um seized upon that charitable impulse and how they um made their way um trying to be like strolling entertainers and it was difficult because there were laws against vagabonds at the time um, that if you didn't have, if you weren't connected with a family, didn't have a sponsorship um, from an aristocratic family that you're considered like a beggar and just a, a vagabond. And so I was interested in how strolling entertainers got around that. And so I look at the example of uh, John Taylor, who never would have been considered a vagabond because he actually did work for King James, he was one of King James's watermen or one of these people who drove barges across the Thames River, taking people across the river. Um, but he had this, again, because he had enterprise, he had this entrepreneurial scheme to uh, make a pilgrimage, again, using a, a, you know, a religiously very, you know, symbolically weighted word to make a, take a walk from London up to Scotland and back and charge money along the way. He wasn't saying he was charging money though. He, he funded his walk. He said by relying, basically relying on the kindness of strangers. And that's why he called it a penniless pilgrimage, but it was all a marketing scheme. It's fascinating, you know? So he's, he's using these, um, again, very, um, you know, devote a devotional form, the pilgrimage, um, in which people going on pilgrimage usually would have like a letter from their bishop and that would allow them entree either across certain borders or, you know, into certain towns. And then people would contribute, um, to that, you know, that devotional impulse. Now he wasn't doing anything devotional. He was just walking <laughs> through the landscape of, of England up to Scotland and back. And, uh, but he did fashion himself an entertainer. And so one of the things was he called it a pilgrimage. But if, if it was a pilgrimage, it was a pilgrimage between 
eminent households of, of rich aristocrats because he was really well connected. <laughs> so he basically got to stay at these like great castles and things along the way. But um, there were times when he had to sort of go and throw himself to the mercy of a town or meet a mayor or something. But people kind of knew who he was. But what was interesting when I started looking at, because of course, one of the reason it was an entrepreneurial scheme was because he wrote a story. He wrote a narrative of it, said where he went, said where he stayed, and um, then sold subscriptions to his pamphlet. He sold something like 1,600 subscriptions. So people basically pledged that they would pay um, when his pamphlet was done. Um, And so that was his entrepreneurial scheme. And um, it was a three-month trip. He relied on hospitality the whole time, but he would tell these stories. Um, and I think he told them, he wrote them in his book as if he told them, <laughs> but we don't have proof. Um, but it's interesting because he told stories, certain like biblical stories and adventure stories that you might hear, like taken from the Bible. So it's almost like he was using stories that people would have seen on a pageant wagon, um, like a harrowing of hell story, or um, he talked about being accosted by a woman who looked like a demon at an inn one night. Um, so he has these sort of lascivious and and very uh, sensational tales that he used um, that to me would have been associated. Some of them are clearly associated with early um, religious drama in order to make himself, um, in order to make his whole story and his travels more marketable in the end. And it is funny because half of his subscribers defaulted. And so, you know, and I have, and I have a, an image of the title page of his, he wrote a second pamphlet that was about how people really need to pay up. You know, when, when you pledge a subscription to, you know, to this subscription, when you subscribe, you need to pay up. Um, and a, on the title page of that pamphlet are um, a hand reaching out and like six or seven eels slithering away. So he's basically saying his subscri- his subscribers were like eels trying to slip away from their pledge. <laughs> mm, it's funny how people still haven't really changed from what you're saying in that way. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I want that life, just going on a pilgrimage and right. living it up in some kind of castle or something. Like, right. Gosh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Um, but continuing too with kind of like, you know, these discussions of marketability and stuff, right? You know, in chapters going on the next two chapters, five and yeah. six, you kind of switch gears to this idea of, you know, how mockery comes into play. So can you talk about that um, with the case studies you present in five and six as well? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It does. The the book does shift gears um, because um, in those last two chapters, one in the Chapter five is devoted to university drama and chapter six is devoted to Shakespeare's play Love's Labor's Lost that comments on um, a basically an ecclesiastical dispute, but it takes place in a series of satirical pamphlets called the Marperlet Tracks. Um, and so in, in both those chapters, I'm, I'm talking about how entertainments uh, both use and comment on festive forms and festive mockery um, to make a political point. So in looking at university drama, I look at two uh, entertainments, the Justa Grayorum, which was a 1594 Christmas entertainment at Gray's Inn, which was a law school in London. 
And then um, I look at the Christmas Prince, which is a 1607 St. John's College, Oxford entertainment. And um, so both of those use a festive form and they basically use my old, my old guy, the Lord of Misrule. <laughs> they use this sort of Christmas Lord who was a, like a satirical mock Lord of a mock court um, to uh, this. And this was sort of common in university drama that these entertainments during holidays would maybe stage a, a mock court or a festive Lord. And then there would be an a- actual play performed and that one character would be like the star of the play. Um, but what I got interested in with university drama was, okay, there was political, there were political points being made in those plays, but some of the political points were made just by virtue of how the funds were raised. And so, um, with university drama, they didn't use, uh, entry fees like Shakespeare, like the public drama on Shakespeare's stage in London, they used, um, donors, So, but they made it very public. So they would actually, in the manuscript of the play and in the printed copy of the play, they would write down the names of who actually donated to the play. So kind of like you, like if you go to the symphony, you'll see the big donors like listed in the program in the back. So it was a lot like, a lot like that. But they also then sent out letters to people who they had asked to donate, but didn't yet. And they um, just had sort of threatening ways of talking about how they would expose those people if they didn't um, contribute. So I was looking at that. It was really, it was fascinating. And so the in the Christmas Prince, especially at St. John's College, Oxford, I found evidence both in the, in the plot of the play and certain lines, and then also in the list of donors, that all the big donors were anti-Puritan um, and the Puritans, you know, came to their ascendancy in, in politics in, in England and eventually, you know, led to the civil war of 1642. And so, um, it seems to me that this donor list was like a list of people who were countering the Puritans. And it was almost like a, it was almost like a message to King James at the time saying, look, don't, um, we have lots of support for this like anti-Puritan play. And these are, like William Laud was one of them, and he was a big figure in in the English Church for the like traditionalists for the anti-Puritan faction, um, and he was the the largest donor to this play. And then lots of people who were associated later with um, the more like conservative or conventional um, church figures in the 17th century. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, but they would also use a Christmas Lord or a mock Lord to, to make that whole point. And then when I move on to Love's Labor's Lost and the Marperlit tracks, um, to me, it's interesting because I really believe that Shakespeare, there's so many references in Love's Labor's Lost that I trace to the Marperlit tracks that I feel that um, there's just a lot of connections being made there. And that Shakespeare is basically saying, look, this festive, really like harmful, personal invective and the scurrility that people are starting to use in these church um, dispute pamphlets, this whole sort of, um, it was like a pamphlet battle between those who hated the Puritans and those who were like supportive, um, that they, they got really libelous and they started talking about like the sexual lives of different figures. And it was just, 
it was really vitriolic. And so um, Shakespeare in his play, I believe, and I won't go into the details, but I just trace away in that chapter that he comments on the harm that that type of festive scurrility does. Um, and there's a, a quote from the end of the play where this figure, Rosaline, who is being courted by this man, Barone, in a play that seems like it should be a, a festive comedy, which you know, Shakespeare's comedies typically end in marriage. There are no marriages at the end of this play. In fact, there's kind of more conflict. And so it leads up between the wooing of these ladies and the wooing of these ladies. In the end, it kind of all falls apart. And the ladies sort of chastise the men for being too, like too harsh and satirical in their jokes because they were sort of, there's a scene in the play where they mock people trying to put on a festive production of a play. And the female character says to the male character, Rosalind says to Barone, a jest's prosperity lies in the ear of him that hears it, never in the tongue of him that makes it. So she's basically saying it's all about audience reception. And so it gets back to sort of the core of my book, which is about, you know, you really have to think about your audience. You have to court your audience and pursue them and please them. And it's not about how funny you think you are. You think you're, you know, some satirical mocker of um, those people you're looking down upon or those people you don't approve of. It's a, a just prosperity lies in the ear of him that hears it. So it's like, if you want to have successful drama, you have to think about the audience and you have to think about the marketability of your play. So that's sort of where I, I end that chapter. Yeah. And like you're saying, that's kind of the, you know, general premise of the whole book and, you know, listeners, if you want to know more, go check out the book and, you know, give it a read. It's a really good read. And you've learned a little bit from Dr. Ingram today. Um, but thank you, uh, Dr. Ingram, for joining us today on New Books and Celebration Studies. Well, thanks um, for having me, Emily. It was really a pleasure. Yeah. Um, as we wrap up, I just have one last question. What other projects are you working on right now? Um, my my next big project is um, I'm actually contributing to the Map of Early Modern London project, which is a, a digital project, which is it's fascinating. Um, anybody can look it up, just you know, Google Map of Early Modern London. But um, the project looks at all the celebrations, um, various types of celebrations happening in and around London, maps them onto London, like especially processional celebrations, and then provides a um, a digitized, you know, uh, like a facsimile of the uh, original manuscript, but then um, an updated manuscript that you can, um, I'm sorry, updated like TypeScript digitally that you can use to like click on certain references and see, oh, that's, you know, that's referring to little conduit. And then that's in this part of London, or that's referring to um, this part of the Thames where the barge, you know, took this, um, these fireworks display before they landed on, um, you know, in London. And so it's an interesting spatial um, representation of these dramatic events. And so the specific contribution that I'm working on is um, Thomas Haywood's mayoral show called Londini Emporia, and it was a 1633 uh, show put on for um, the inauguration of the mayor that year of London. Cool. That sounds really interesting, and I'll look forward to seeing more about that project. I'll have to look it up. Thanks for sharing that. Um, 
But listeners, uh, just as a recap, uh, this was an interview with Dr. Jill Ingram, author of Festive Enterprise, The Business of Drama in Medieval and Renaissance England, published by Notre Dame Press in 2021. And this is Emily Allen, and I'll catch you next time here on the New Books Network.